So why don't you take your Bibles and open them to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And as you're turning, imagine a woman, a Christian woman. She goes to church. She believes the gospel. She loves the Lord. But for her entire life, she has struggled with the assurance of her salvation. She's been plagued with doubt for her entire life. It's not that she's doubting God. She's doubting herself, her own salvation. Every time she falls into sin, she wonders why she, she continues to sin, why she's still wrestling with the same thing for so long. It causes her to doubt if she's truly saved. Well, one day this woman finds herself on her deathbed. She loves the Lord, but even still she, she's wondering if she's truly going to heaven. She passes away. What happens next? Well, she goes to heaven. She fell asleep in this world only to wake up in the next in the presence of her Lord and Savior. And though never strong in her assurance, her faith was true and Jesus welcomed her into his kingdom. And there are many people like this woman. Their faith is true and strong. They know the Lord. They love the Lord. They follow the Lord. But for a variety of reasons, they never have a great personal assurance of their salvation. This does not change the fact, though, that they are God's child and the Savior will welcome them into his presence. Now imagine a man. He's also a Christian, but throughout his life, he's always had full assurance of his salvation. Never a doubt in his mind that he would go to heaven. He knows a lot about the Bible. He goes to church regularly. He serves. He volunteers. He's a big giver. Everyone in the church knows him and and knows of him as a prominent Christian. One day, this guy passes away as well. He too falls asleep in this world, waking up in the next, and Jesus is there, but Jesus does not welcome this man. Takes one look at him and says, I don't know this man. And he orders for him to be locked out of the kingdom and, and taken to a place of outer darkness. Like the woman, there are also countless people like this man that they're very religious, very moral in their appearance. They do Christian things. They say Christian things. They go to church. They they know some of the Bible. But their faith is false. They do not love and obey the Lord. They live a double life of wickedness and ungodliness, a life they hide from all those people at church. They're deficient in their understanding of the gospel, relying instead on religion to save them. And although they may have assurance, their assurance, like their faith, is false. Jesus spoke of such people in in Matthew chapter 7. Just listen along. Verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do do we not prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. These people, on the day of judgment, they were calling Jesus Lord. And they they were very religious. They were prophesying, casting out demons, performing miracles. I mean, are there any works greater than these? But that's their problem. What are they relying on for their entrance into the kingdom? their own efforts, their own works. 
But that is insufficient. And furthermore, the three works they point to, they're not even commanded by God. It's not even the picture of true righteousness. And to the contrary, their lives were characterized by something far different. Lawlessness. In verse 23, Jesus says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They lived lives dominated by sin, without repentance, without change. They were not growing in godliness because they had never been made alive in Christ. He never knew them. They never knew him. They knew about him, but they didn't know him. For the past few weeks, we've been getting into this letter, 2 Peter. We've already seen the importance of knowing Jesus. Life, eternal life, comes by knowing him. Not knowing about him, but but knowing him. This, This relational, saving, personal knowledge of him. If a person comes to know Christ, he or she will be born again. And as you come to new spiritual life, you grow. Because as we learned last week, all living things grow. Spiritual growth will result. You will still sin, but you're going to struggle with sin. That's the whole point. You, you fight against it now. It is your adversary now as you strive to please the Lord in all respects. But not all people who claim to be Christians are spiritually growing like this. We learned about that in verse 9 of chapter 1 last week. Some are stagnating, some even declining. But but wait a second, I thought all living things grow. What do we make of such people who are not growing? Some surely are spiritually alive, but they aren't thriving. They're not feeding off of the rich soil of Christ. Their tree has become polluted because their roots are deep in the world and sin. They're feeding off the wrong things. It's affecting their fruit. It's polluting their fruit, and they're not thriving as they should be. Others, though, may not be alive at all. They may be like those unsaved in Matthew 7. They're not growing. They're not thriving because they're not alive. They're spiritually dead. And it's hard. It's hard to tell which is which. Who's who when you're dealing with someone who professes to be a Christian, but they're not growing in godliness. It's hard to tell. But this brings up a very important question. If it's possible for someone to be deceived into thinking that they are saved when in reality they're not, how do you know if you are really saved? How do you know if if you're not one of those deceived persons? There's no worse position to be in than to think you're healthy when you're really sick or to think that you're safe when you're really in danger. So spiritually speaking, how can you know if you're, if you're safe and if you're healthy? And this brings up the topic of assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is a very real and very important subject, and Peter addresses it here in his letter. He definitely wants his readers to be assured of, his, of their salvation for their sakes. And so he includes a pair of verses teaching them on the matter. And this morning... We want to learn from these couple of verses and receive this instruction for ourselves. What is this assurance of salvation all about? And why is it important? 
And how does one get this assurance? And this morning we aim to find out. And I want us to begin by, by reading our text for this morning. If you haven't already, turn to Second Peter chapter 1, right after contrasting in verses 8 and 9, those who are growing in godliness and those who aren't, he writes this, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Today, we want to receive a general introduction to this concept of assurance of salvation. I want to cover the bases of this teaching in Scripture and, and equip you with this, this much-needed truth. So we're going to make our way through this pair of verses from Second Peter, bring in a few other verses as well to, give, to round things out a little bit and give you an introduction to assurance. And to help with an outline, but let's go by way of a question and answer. So let's, let's do this. Let's aim to answer three questions about the assurance of salvation with the hope that you may be assured in Christ. Three questions about the assurance of salvation with the hope that you may be assured in Christ. And the first question, starting off simply, what is assurance of salvation? Number one, what is assurance of salvation? Now this might seem obvious to some of you, but we don't want to be too hasty and skip over the basic definition. What is it? What, what exactly are we talking about when we're speaking of the assurance of salvation? Well, in verse 10, Peter gives both an explanation and an exhortation regarding this assurance. Look at verse 10 again. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. And this right here is actually a very good definition of assurance. Assurance of salvation deals with making certain of Christ's calling and choosing you. He says here that you are to be diligent to make certain of this. Speaking of confirming something, you're trying to confirm your salvation. Is your salvation secure? Is it on a firm footing? Picture an anchor, an anchor on a battleship. If you've ever seen one, they're huge, the size of a car, a little bit larger. When that thing drops down, even though they're in rough seas, the anchor fixes the ship on solid ground. It confirms the ship's position, keeps it steady, keeps it steadfast. Is your salvation like that? Is it, is it confirmed? Is it steady, steadfast? That's what you're trying to make certain. You're trying to confirm your salvation is that way. Specifically, he says, you're trying to confirm Christ's calling and choosing of you. And it's just another way of speaking of your salvation. We've got this call, God's call. That is his divine summons where he beckons someone to come to life. And they do. They are born again. This is not a calling that can be rejected. It is always effectual. Everyone who is called by God comes to salvation. But you don't call out to him until he first calls out to you. But when he does, you will answer. This is God's call. Like 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 says, 
God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Jesus Christ from all eternity. And that right there at the end of 2 Timothy 1.9, by the way, this grace that was granted to us from all eternity, that's another way of speaking of God's election or his choosing. Like Peter says, his calling and now his choosing of you. God knows who are his. He has known this from all eternity. He has chosen from all eternity. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, don't misunderstand what Peter's saying, though. He's not saying that you are to make God call and choose you. You can't make God call and choose you. It's not possible. It's not like you can sneak into heaven and, and write your name down in the, in the book of life. You can't do that. It's already been written. It's already been determined. Instead, what we're talking about when it comes to the assurance of salvation, you're not trying to make your name be written down. You're trying to determine, to confirm whether or not your name has been written down, whether or not God has called and chosen you. This is the assurance of salvation. And this act of being diligent to make certain to confirm this, it's not a one-time thing. This is a lifelong process. Continually, throughout your Christian life, you should be checking in on yourself, examining yourself to see if you're truly following the Lord. Listen to this verse. Write it down. You don't have to turn there, but 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Just listen. He ends his letter with this command. He says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It's, it's really the same as 2 Peter. As you examine yourself, you test yourself, you are making certain of your calling and choosing, the result is confidence, if you pass. Confidence in your, that your name has been written in the book of life. Confidence that you are saved. And this confidence is what we call assurance. Now, back in, in verse 10 of 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter describes this confidence in a couple of ways. Look again at verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. As you make certain of your calling and choosing, the result is confidence. And he says confidence that, that you will never stumble Confidence that you will enter into the kingdom. He says first you'll never stumble. Talking about being sure-footed, on solid footing. Have you ever seen a horse trip? I mean, not in the movies, but in real life. There's horses all around here. If you just like watch one in nature just fall down, I've never seen that. Maybe, maybe it has. I'm sure. I'm sure they have. But they seem to be rather sure-footed animals. They're very steady. They don't seem to stumble very often. 
And he's saying spiritually, as you are assured in Christ, you're not going to stumble. You will never stumble. You're going to be sure-footed. This is not talking about stumbling into sin. Even believers will, at times, stumble into sin. This is talking about stumbling into apostasy, where someone turns away from the faith, that they abandon Christ. They just stop. They stop being a Christian, so to speak. They stumble so as to fall away. If you are truly saved, that can't happen. That's not even possible. And so what he's saying is, as you gain confidence in your true salvation, you can walk with a sure footing, no longer fearing that you might fall away. And in reality, God is the one who who keeps you from stumbling. He's holding you up. Assurance of salvation, it's where you come to know that, that God is holding you. And that's what it's about. It's like Jude says at the end of his letter, Jude verse 24. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to him be the glory. That's what God does. He, he, he keeps you from stumbling. He makes you stand. And we're going to talk about this later, but assurance of salvation, it's not about having confidence in yourself. It's about having confidence in the Lord. It's not that you are too good to stumble. It's that he is too good to let you fall. But we're going to come back to that. Back to to 2 Peter. Not only does Peter describe this confidence in terms of never stumbling, but he also says as we receive this assurance, we we know that we're going to finish the course. We're going to enter the kingdom. Verse 11. He says, For in this way the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Jesus himself equated salvation with entering the kingdom all the time. It was his favorite metaphor for heaven, entering the kingdom. If you want to be saved, you have to enter the kingdom. If you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to be saved. You just equated them. But he made it clear not everyone is going to enter. Not everyone is going to enter the kingdom. So it begs the question, okay, how do you get in? How do you enter the kingdom? And the answer is very clear. Through Jesus. He is the door. He is the way. It's only through him, by being born again, by faith in him, that anyone can enter. Matthew chapter 18, verse 3 says, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 3, verse 5 Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Salvation comes by faith in Christ alone. As you you see your sin and you turn away from it, you repent of your sins, you turn away from them and you follow Christ in faith, God saves you and he gives you entrance into the kingdom. This is an eternal kingdom, Peter says. It will never end, for it is ruled by an eternal Lord and Savior. But understand this. In verse 11 of 2 Peter, 
It's not talking about how you enter the kingdom. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about knowing that you're on your way in. Your efforts do not gain you entry into the kingdom. That's not your your price of admission. Your ticket in is faith in Christ. But your efforts, they do show you whether or not you're on your way in. You're on the right path. Those who are on their way in, so to speak, they live like they're following Christ. Like they're going on the narrow path to the narrow gate. Their, their efforts, their lives confirm that they're on the path. And for such people, they're not left wondering where the entrance is. That's what Peter is saying. They are assured because God abundantly supplies to them the entrance. It's dead ahead. Just keep following Christ and you can walk confidently knowing the entrance is going to be supplied to you. It's going to be straight ahead. And there's a lot of allusions in the, in the New Testament to the ancient Greek Olympics. We see them all over the place. And some think there's another one in this passage. In the ancient Olympics, they have this tradition where after a person won, his home city, filled with great pride, they would welcome him back into the city, not through the normal city gates. No, they would, they would tear down a portion of the city wall to welcome him in, a special entrance just for him. And all true believers are going to enter heaven like this. The entrance will be supplied and you will pass through triumphantly and victoriously, but it won't be because of your effort. God grants us our victory. He rewards us with entrance. But still, in knowing him and gaining assurance, you can live confidently in this life Searching of your entrance into God's kingdom in the next. That's what Peter is driving at, this assurance. So hopefully now you better understand this concept of the assurance of salvation. We, we really do, in Second Peter, have one of the clearest verses on assurance in the New Testament. You are confirming Christ's calling and choosing of you. Now scripture talks about the assurance of salvation often. And the Bible expects Christians to have it. It's, it's not for the spiritually elite. It's not. It's for all believers. All Christians should be assured of their salvation. I mean, look, if you're truly saved, God wants you to know that. Do you think he wants you guessing all your life? No, he wants you to know. And assurance is a real possibility and an expected reality in the Bible. It's a real possibility and it's an expected reality in the Bible. And it's very important. Being assured of your salvation is so important to your Christian walk. In fact, before we get to you know, how does one get assurance, we want to get to, the, to a second question now in this little general introduction to assurance. Let's ask a second question. Why is assurance of salvation important? Number two, why is assurance of salvation important? As we saw in verses 10 and 11, Peter talks of assurance in terms of this confidence. Confidence that you're not going to stumble, you're not going to fall away. Confidence that you're going to enter the kingdom. And that confidence is so important for your walk, for your Christian life. He wants you to have this confidence. 
Why? Because it has so many practical benefits. It's got some good side effects. Let's say you, you get a prescription drug. You're used to that long list of negative side effects. You just got to live with. Assurance has a long list of positive side effects. You want this. And let me give you a couple of these. Just by way, again, of this general introduction to assurance. A couple ways, a couple of these benefits to assurance. First, true assurance brings great peace and joy into your life. Peace and joy. Peace and joy are fruits of salvation. But if you're doubting your salvation, you're going to miss out on experiencing all the peace and the joy that you should have. If you're constantly doubting your salvation, you're going to lack this. As believers, you don't need to fear life. And you don't need to fear death. You shouldn't fear whatever life brings. Or death itself. Because you know glory awaits you. You should live life with this peace and this joy. And you should even encounter death with a peace and a joy. Because you know where you're headed. It's better. But if you're lacking assurance, you're going to lack that peace and joy in life and when facing death. And God does not want you to live that way. Second, true assurance aids your perseverance. Second, perseverance in the Christian life. Having assurance of your salvation helps you endure life's difficulties. Paul himself said, he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. You know it. Life is full of trials and tribulations. And there's nothing like suffering to cause you to doubt your salvation. But if you're assured of your salvation, like Paul was and others, then you can endure whatever difficulty or suffering comes your way because you, you know you're safe, you're secure, you're headed for the kingdom, you just have to persevere. And your assurance helps you with that. Now, if you've got a kid and they refuse when you go to the doctor to get a shot because they're scared of the pain, what would you tell them? You'd tell them, like, it's going to be okay. It, it might sting a little bit, but you're going to be fine. You're not going to die. In fact, it's for your, for your health. It's for your benefit. So you're trying to assure them that it's going to turn out good in the end. And that assurance helps them confront and deal with the pain, that they can endure the pain. And it's the same with us. Knowing personally that you have glory awaiting you in Christ, it's, it's going to turn out good, far better in the end. That can help you endure whatever comes your way in life, whatever difficulty comes your way. Third, true assurance promotes boldness in evangelism. Boldness in evangelism. Now, doubt really shoots your witness in the foot. You're trying to share the gospel with someone, tell them of the power to Jesus to save, but, but you doubt that power in your own life? It's really going to thwart your, your witness. And what really happens, though, is that for most Christians who, who doubt their salvation, they don't even bother with evangelism. They're like, eh, I'm not going to even go there. They just don't witness, and that's a problem because God wants us witnessing to the world of, of him and his gospel. Having that assurance, though, you're convicted of God's power to save and his power to save you, and you're ready to share that with others. Assurance promotes that boldness in evangelism. And then one more, there are many more, but I'm just give you one more by way of introduction. 
Finally, true assurance enables much fruitfulness in your life. Fruitfulness. Back when I was a college pastor, I had a college student once who really struggled with her assurance of salvation. And spiritually, she, she was just a wreck. Up one day, down the next, always doubting her salvation. And, and I saw it. I saw the, the toll it took on her spiritual walk. She was not growing like she should have been. She was not bearing fruit like she should have been or serving the Lord like she should have or could have been. But when your doubt, when your doubt is lifted, you can really get to work for the Lord unaffected. And that's Peter's concern, by the way. He wants to see them get to work. Like we said last week, he wants to see these believers striving for spiritual growth. But for this to happen, they need confidence in Christ, in their position in Christ. You know, when the Golden Gate Bridge was being built in San Francisco, 1933, during that first phase of construction, they had no safety equipment at all. And 23 men fell to to their death during the first phase of construction. Eventually, they got around to installing a safety net, which is a good idea. cost a lot of money, but they installed it. And during the the last phase of construction, when the net was installed, 10 men fell. But they were all saved by the net. But, But get this. During that last phase of construction, when the net was installed, productivity went up 25%. Just imagine that. When these workers were assured of their safety, they could focus on their work. They could really just just get to work and focus on their work. And it's the same for Christians when it comes to serving the Lord. When you know that you're safe, you can focus on serving Him entirely and and bearing fruit, just running the race without distraction. So for these reasons and many more, assurance of salvation is a good thing. It is an important reality. It's very useful. Again, you you can be saved without being assured of your salvation, of course. But for those who have it, it brings great peace and joy and perseverance, boldness and evangelism, fruitfulness, and more. We have now one, one more question we want to get to in this little general introduction to assurance. Perhaps the most important question you're you're asking yourself right now, question number three, how do you obtain assurance of salvation? How do you get it, if you want to put it that way? How do you obtain assurance of salvation? Understand this. Every true believer is fully assured of their salvation. Meaning, if you are truly saved, you are guaranteed salvation. You are 100% assured. However, not all Christians feel assured. And that's because personal assurance is subjective. This is a subjective reality entirely, assurance. So we have to be careful here. Someone can feel saved and yet not truly be saved while another person cannot feel saved, yet truly be saved. This being the case, we need to make sure we are examining ourselves correctly. What are we basing this feeling of assurance on? That's the question. What is assurance based on? How does one obtain true personal assurance? And it's something we want to get right. 
Literally, we could study this for weeks. But of course, just for our, our little introduction here, uh, uh, going off of Second Peter and a few other passages, I want to give you just just the two two basic foundations that support personal assurance. Two basic foundations that support personal assurance. And there are more, but these two will really get you started. And by far, number one, that the far by far the most important foundation for personal assurance is is this trusting the word of God. Trusting the word of God. By far the most important. You have to understand and remember what, what is salvation based on? Your salvation is based on faith, on trusting God, trusting his words, trusting his promises, trusting his offer of eternal life. And assurance of salvation is based on the same thing, trusting God's words, trusting his promises, his offer of life. Think about this. If salvation was based on works, then your assurance of salvation would also be based on works and how well you perform. The Pharisees, the Pharisees had a ton of assurance of salvation. They were, in their minds, they, they knew without a doubt that they were going to heaven. And why is that? Because they thought salvation was based on keeping the law. And so they looked at themselves like, hey, we keep the law pretty good. And so they were assured of their salvation, that they passed that test. But they got the test wrong. Because salvation nor assurance is based on works or efforts with the wrong foundation, their assurance and their faith were false. If salvation was based on your human effort, then assurance of that salvation would come from confidence in yourself. But salvation is not based on your effort, but Christ's efforts. And so true assurance comes from taking Jesus at his word. That's all you have to do. Just take Jesus at his word. It comes not from having confidence in yourself, but from having confidence in God. S. Lewis Johnson gives a great illustration of assurance here. Let's pretend a man named Ron walks up to you. He says, I've just deposited $10,000 into your bank account. All you have to do is go to the bank right now and withdraw it within the next hour. How would you respond to just this guy walking up to you? Some people would just not believe him. They, they would doubt him too much. They would just walk away. They, they don't believe it. And they would never benefit from the $10,000. Others, they, they would believe him, but with doubt. They're like, oh, well, okay, that sounds nice, but it's probably good, too good to be true. They don't want to get too excited. Maybe, maybe it's a scam. So if they get around to it, they'll go to the bank. They're not going to rush. They're not going to get all excited because they just don't really believe because of their doubt, these people miss out on the joy that comes with receiving such a gift. And then there's other people who they would believe Ron without a doubt. They would just take him at his word, and so they would be excited. Like, oh, thank you. They think of all the ways they could spend the money and get all happy about it. They run down to the bank. They tell the teller, you know, fork it over, and they get it. These people have the money and they also have the joy that comes with receiving such a gift. See, these three different people have different levels of assurance that they truly received the gift. And what was their assurance based on? 
nothing but Ron's word. Do, do they believe this guy? And are they going to take him at his word? And that's it. Well, our assurance of salvation is the same way. It is ultimately based on God's word. I mean, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins? Do you believe that God will save all those who believe in Christ? If you do, how much do you take him at his word? How much do you do you believe all those offers of salvation? If you do, there's your assurance. There's your assurance. Keep a finger in Second Peter and turn to John chapter three just just briefly, and I want to show you firsthand some of God's promises to you who believe. And then you tell me about your assurance. John chapter three. Probably don't have to make you turn to this one, but look at the famous John 3.16. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's a very simple promise. If you believe... You won't perish. Not that you might not perish, but you shall not perish. You will have eternal life. Do, do you believe that? You're going to take John, John 3.16 at face value or not? Turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Make a verse 40. For this, Jesus says, is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Another promise. Do you behold him? Do you believe him? Then you will have eternal life. Verse 47 of John chapter 6. It doesn't get any simpler than this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. Again, are are you going to take God's word at face value? Are you going to believe and trust in God's word? Romans 10, verse 9, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not that you you might be saved, but you might not. You will be saved. So you claim to believe in Jesus. That's good. You confess him as Lord and Savior. Very good. Are you saved? Well, what is your confidence level in God's word? It should be 100%, and therefore you should have 100% assurance. If your assurance is like a big, tall TV tower, you know those huge towers? Then the word of God is like that massive concrete foundation that it rests on. Your assurance, it rests on the foundation of God's word, primarily trusting God's word. Now, there's a second foundation to your personal assurance. I told you there'd be two. In fact, to be precise here, don't call this a foundation. Call this a support. This is a support to your assurance. And this support to your assurance is your lifestyle, namely, living a consistent life. 
living a consistent life. If you can picture those, those huge TV towers, those big metal towers reaching up into the sky, they've got one foundation. That's that concrete, like the Word of God. But they also have these wires coming off, supporting it. You know, They're called guy wires, usually three of them. And these wires, they don't enable the tower to stand, but they do keep it from falling. And that's the role your life and your actions have in your assurance. Your assurance is not based on how you live, because salvation is not by works. But if your life is so contrary to the life of faith, then your assurance has good reason to fall. Now turn to 1 John chapter 5. If you kept your finger in 2 Peter, it's just one book next. 1 John chapter 5, near the end of your Bible. More than any other book of the Bible, 1 John deals with and addresses assurance of salvation. In fact, that's his primary purpose for writing 1 John. And I want to show you this. 1 John, when you get there, chapter 5, verse 13. This is his purpose statement to the whole letter. He's telling them one of the primary reasons that he wrote this entire letter in 1 John 5.13. He says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Who's he writing to? He's writing to people who already believe in Jesus. They, they already believe. And he's writing so that they know that they have eternal life. Not that they would have it, but that they would know that they have it. That's called assurance of salvation. And in 1 John, throughout the letter, he presents several tests of assurance. Remember how Hebrews 13.5 said, test yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. These are some of those tests. This is what it looks like to test yourself. Am I in the faith? And I'll give you, there's several in First John. We'll talk about two of them. First, we have the test of love. The test of love. Turn to First John chapter 3. Just back a chapter. First John chapter 3. Look at verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. He doesn't say we pass out of death into life by loving the brethren. That's not how we're saved. But look, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Chapter 4, verse 20. If someone says... I love God, that's, that's a profession, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. There's, there's many more verses, but here's the deal. If true believers should be characterized by just one thing, it would be love. And so if love is missing from your life, why should you believe that you've been born again, that you're alive? Those who have been born again, those who have come to truly love God, 
they will, by definition, come to love others. So if that's not you, if, if you have no love for others in your life or are characterized by this hatred for others, you have reason to doubt your claim of salvation. You should not have assurance. So that's one test in First John, the test of love. There's another test, test of obedience. There's a broader test, the test of obedience. This is actually what Peter was referring to in, in our passage this morning in Second Peter chapter 1. Remember before, he was just talking about spiritual growth. Remember from last week, all living things grow. If you're alive, you're going to grow. If you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, you come to life, you will grow. It's just by definition. That's how it works. You're going to start to look like Jesus. Not perfectly, of course, but there's going to be a change. So if a person claims to be a Christian, but there's no change, that they're just not different. There's no change in their actions, their attitudes, their desires. They have reason to question if they have been truly saved. Maybe they are, but they have reason to question if they have assurance of salvation. Like Peter said in our verse, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For, he says, as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. What's he talking about? Practice these things. This is referring to all those marks of godly living and spiritual growth that we found in verses 5 through 7. As you practice these things, as you are growing in godliness, you are making certain about your calling because all living things grow. You grow, you're alive, you're assured. And John presents a similar test, you could say, a test of obedience. And just look at one verse here, by far, the clearest, most powerful verse when it comes to this test of obedience is in 1 John chapter 2. Turn back to 1 John chapter 2. And look at verse 3. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Look at this first phrase. By this we know that we have come to know him. Make sure you get that straight. He's not saying this is how we come to know him. He's saying this is how we know that we have come to know him. This is assurance of salvation. Verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, here we go, another person making a claim, the one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is He's not in him. How is he a liar? He's he's lying when he says he knows God. He doesn't. And you see the pattern, same as before, same as after. Verse 5, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Again, by this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Just like love, if you're born again, John said, you should love one another. If you're born again, you should walk in the same manner as Christ walked. The same teaching came from the mouth of Christ himself. John 15, verse 8. 
My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. John 15, verse 8. Like Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. That's how you know them. The way you live is very revealing, either confirming or denying the reality of your new birth. Like I said, your assurance, it's not built on how you live, your actions, your love, your obedience. It's not built on that. But if they're missing, you have good reason for your assurance to fall. The way you live sure does reveal a lot about where you truly are with the Lord. And to wrap this up, this answers our third question. How do you get assurance? How does one obtain this assurance of salvation? Primarily, just believe God. Believe his word. Trust his promises. Do you do that? Do you trust him? You can take comfort and be assured Additionally, strive to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Examine your life. Of course, you're not going to be perfect as you want to, but are you changed? Are you different now that you follow Christ? Are you growing? Do you want to grow? Do you want to please him in all respects? Every Christian is going to wrestle with sin until death. In fact, that's part of the definition, one who now wrestles with sin because you hate it. These are signs of life. These are signs of assurance. This teaching on assurance can be very tricky, and here's why. You want so badly to give true believers true assurance, but you don't want to give false believers false assurance. You don't want to say too much. You don't want to say too little. So let let me say just this. I've known many people who have called themselves Christians, but were not. Sure, you know they came to church on Sunday, But like Jesus said, their lives were marked by lawlessness. They assumed the title of Christian for themselves, but not the whole following Jesus part in every way. He was not their Savior, not their Lord. They lived a double life. Or around their friends at church or their Christian friends, they would say the right things and do the right things. But when they were out of the church, whether with their non-Christian friends or when they were alone, they were a totally different person. It's not that they just struggled with sin. It's that they were enslaved to it. They lived in it. They harbored it. They gave a safe haven to to all the sin in their life. Ultimately, they just weren't changed. There was no real change. Anyone can, can fake change, but there was no real change in their life. It's been said that who you are when you're alone and you think no one is watching, that's who you really are. And such people were just not changed. No Christian is going to be perfect, but they will be changed. It's going to be different in some way. And these people weren't changed. If you're here this morning, you've never been changed. You have that double life of sin. You refuse to submit to Jesus as your Lord and Savior. At the very least, you should not be assured of your salvation. I don't want to give someone a false assurance of salvation. If this is you, you need to examine yourself carefully and examine your claims. You might be in danger. Do you claim to believe in Jesus? Do you know what that really means? I I trust, I hope, I pray that you are 
truly saved, that you know him, that your faith is genuine. But you need to turn from your life of sin and follow the Lord, or else you'll never know peace and assurance in this life. You may not know it in the next as well. You need to be warned. At the same time, for, for most of you, I believe, I want you to take comfort. If salvation or assurance of salvation, if, if it were all up to you, then we all would be pulling our hair out wondering. But we stand and we're assured by God's grace. So rest assured in his grace. And do you have signs of life? Have you been changed? You're not perfect, but you're in the race. You're following the Lord. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. You know, sometimes sin gets the best of you, but you hate it now, and you're fighting against it. You know the gospel. You believe it. You love the Lord. I mean, if this is you, then take comfort. Just take comfort in your salvation. Jesus said, he who believes has eternal life. You believe your life has been changed, so take comfort in that assurance. Rest assured in God's salvation. But don't just rest. Don't just rest. Rest assured in your salvation, but don't take it easy. Like Peter says, you know, enjoy God's grace, thank him for it, but let this motivate you to run faster, to strive harder for godliness, and to bear more fruit. The God who saved you, the God who assures you and makes you stand. You want to live for him in all aspects. So keep running the race. Keep pursuing Christ. Keep growing for his glory. For we who have been redeemed, we want to glorify the God who saved us and secured us in all things. Let me finish a fitting benediction by reading again Jude 24 and 25, how he ends his letter. He says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless, with great joy, to our only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Now, Father, we we begin and we end again by, by worshiping you and exalting your name. In the name of your Son, through whom we have life and through whom we have assurance of life. Lord, we don't come before you standing on our own merits, our own goodness, nor do we stand secured before you by our own merits or goodness. We, we rest on Christ alone and your grace alone. And what can we do but thank you and, and sing your praises for this grace. Thank you again for living, for dying for us, Christ, and for and making us new. Help us to grow. Be patient with our weaknesses. I pray for those true believers here who are struggling with sin. It does cause us to doubt. Help them to grow in godliness, to, to get past their sin, and continually be dealing with their sin, like we learned from First John this morning, confessing it before you. Give them the joy, the supernatural joy that comes from just resting and trusting it in your promises to save. That's all we have to do. He who believes has eternal life, and we believe. At the same time, Lord, I pray for those who are here who may say the right things, but their life is just totally the opposite 
of the one who follows Christ. I pray that you would convict them and warn them. Show them that true faith bears fruit. True faith follows Christ. And I pray that they turn from their ways and turn towards you. At the same time, comfort all of us who, who know you, who love you, who seek to follow you. We can never, we can never do anything but by your grace. So give us great, greater grace in all, all things and in every way to serve and live for you. In your name we pray. Amen.